Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. You know, I mean, uh, he, God says, Boy, your works, mm, those are good works. Oh, your labor, wow, you're just, you know, you go to you exhausted. Your patience, oh, you're so patient. And you can't tolerate which is evil and expose heresy and wrong doctrine. And they're liars. It's wonderful. You haven't fainted. But then it would be nice if it stopped there, but it doesn't. He says in verse 4, Revelation, 2-4, Revelation 2-4, he goes on, nevertheless, now this is the painful part, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. That's bad. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works. Now, where did they fall from? Their first love. What did they forget? Their first love. What should they do the works of? The works of their first love. Or else I'll come quickly unto thee and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Very serious. So they had, so here's this church, perfect orthodoxy, doctrine or statement of faith was even something that Gary Coombs would have approved of, you know. The church of Ephesus had a perfect record of works. They, they worked themselves the bone for the Lord, but the Lord had a terrible, terrible, terrible accusation against them when they lost their first love. So what does that mean? They lost their first love. It means that in the church of Ephesus, there was no childlike excitement with God that Jacob is showing here in verse three. In the church of Ephesus, they all they talked about was all that religious stuff. You know, that's how they referred. They would have said to Jacob, oh, you're gonna tell me all about that religious stuff again. There was no overwhelming marvel about God. Jacob is on display here in verse three. In the church of Ephesus, if someone preached on, you know what happens? Their eyes would glaze over with this look of, we've heard that before. You know, <laughs> that look, you know. That's why the church of Ephesus, they lost their first love. And that's why what we see in Jacob in verse three is that Jacob did not lose his first love because Jacob's all excited to tell Joseph again and as he told him many, many times before what happened, but he's telling it with the excitement like it was the first time. We see in verse verse three is a pattern for how we should be, how we should act in verse three. I mean, when we read the scriptures, we should have that same thrill that we read it for the first time. You know, not a ho-hum you know, start the verse and I'll finish it for you because I've heard it a million times and I've memorized it. When we sing the hymns, when we sing these great songs, these great hymns, these great works, word craftsmanliness, we should have that same thrill that we had when we discovered it for the first time. 
not singing that sounds like a mortician in a funeral home. And this is what's so important to see about verse 3, is this excitement that Jacob has. It reminds me of my Ethiopian friend, Temeskin, who I got to know when he was 12, before he went home to be with the Lord three years later when he was uh, 15 from osteosarcoma cancer. And I remember the times that we would spend together, uh, that I would spend with him in Washington, D.C. He was adopted by my lawyer, Mary Louise and Bruce Cohen. And he would tell me something that he was thinking about, and it was always from the Gospels. It was always from the life of the Lord Jesus. And it was so great because when Temeskin would tell me, and do you know what he did? You know, his eyes would light up. His eyes would light up as he told me again. Yeah, you know, he fed, there were thousands of people. There were 5,000, and he fed them with just a few little bit of bread. It was so great. I said, no, Temeskin, tell it to me, because I just wanted to see his excitement. And, you know, for Temeskin, it wasn't that way. He was just constantly reliving the thrill of the Lord Jesus. And that's what Jacob's doing here. He's reliving the thrill of when God first appeared to him. And that's what we should do. From the, When we read the Bible, we should relive the thrill the thrill of it all. And, 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 and so this is Jacob. So verse three is, is, you want to give a title for verse three, it's Jacob can't get over it. Jacob can't get over it. That's what, that, that's when God first met him. And that really was something in Genesis 28.10. Genesis 28.10 is this thrill that he's reliving when it says Jacob went out from Jersheba and went toward Haran. He was running for his life. He alighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set, and he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows, right? That was Jacob saying, this is my pillow, this is my pillow here. (laughs) And he lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and that the top of it reached to heaven. I mean, he must have been amazed. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, uh, thy father, the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest. To thee will I give it and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in thee, and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee and will keep thee in all the places where thou goest. I will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. That's what he's so thrilled about, and he can't get over, and that's what he's reliving the thrill of. And it's 50 years ago since this happened. It's happened. You know, in two years, it's going to be 50 years since I met the Lord. I hope I'm as excited as Jacob is here. That's why it's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for us to keep on telling others about how we were saved, when we were saved, what happened. And if there's not a thrill and if there's not an excitement, people can tell. And then their response is, well, why, why do I want that? Why do I want to come to know God? I mean, he's not excited about it. He tells me what happened to him with such a lack of passion that it puts me to sleep, and I don't have any trouble falling asleep, so I don't need that. Take a step back and look at this passage here. Look at this scene. We see a son with his sons coming to visit his father who's dying, who's losing ground, he's slipping into death. And when we look at this, we ask the question, what is filling the mind of this old man? I mean, he's about to die, he's slowly slipping away. What's he thinking about? And the first words out of Jacob's mouth, he tells you what he's thinking about and what's filling all of his vision, all of his mental ability here, and it is God Almighty. That's what he's focused on, God Almighty. 
Jacob is pondering God. He's pondering the almightiness of God. He's not conscious of his aches and pains and discomfort. He's not saying, oh, my head is, oh, my heart, oh, my everything. He's not doing that. He's not crying out for more morphine, more morphine. Where's the doctor? Nurse, I need the doctor. He's just taken up with just not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about his sick condition. He's enthralled with God. He's enthralled with God Almighty. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That's a good way to die. You know, we need to make a manual how to have a good way to die, how to die in a good way, (laughs) how to leave the world. Leave the world with a state of enthrallment with God, the enthrallment of who he is and his almightiness. That's Jacob. That's what we see in verse 3. That's what we see in Jacob. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking, I didn't even get a chance. You know, Joseph is walking in there, and he's saying to himself, I didn't even get a chance to say, hi, Dad, how are you? You know, uh, Anything I can do for you? I brought you this. I brought my two sons. Before I could say any of that, Dad, Dad just blurts out, God Almighty. And when Joseph sees that and hears that, Joseph thinks, that's exactly what I expected from Dad. That's exactly what I wanted my boys to see and remember that about their granddad, how granddad was a man of God totally taken up with God, and that's what I wanted my boys to see. I couldn't describe this to my boys. I couldn't tell them about this, that here's a man who's dying, who got all the aches and pains of a person who's dying, and, and he sees his whole life dwindle away, and, he's, and all he's talking about is God Almighty. I couldn't tell my boys that. They had to see it for themselves. So Jacob says in verse 3, God Almighty appeared unto me. And like I said, you can, you can sort of hear Jacob saying, he really did, he really did. He actually appeared to me, he actually appeared to me. I'm such a worm. Why should God Almighty care about me? And that's what astounded Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley, he couldn't get over it also, and so he writes the hymn, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Did he really die for me? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Oh, that's amazing. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How can it be that God should die? But then how can it be that God should die for me? Oh, yeah. What Charles Wesley was really saying there was that could it really be that God Almighty died for me? And that's what Jacob's doing. Jacob is saying there, could it really be that God Almighty appeared to me? Then we see specifically what Jacob is all worked up about, he's consumed with. He's thinking about the wonder of God appearing to him at Luz, which is in verse four, and he said to me, behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and make thee a multitude of people and give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. So he's really happy, he's rejoicing. And first, that God's going to multiply him and his descendants to become what God calls a multitude of people. Another place he talks to them, many nations. And second, he's going to give Jacob the land of, of Canaan. And that's what he's rejoicing in, these two promises that God gave. He's going to be a multitude of people. He's going to get the land of Canaan. It's an amazing sight to see him here. It's an amazing sight to see him rejoicing over these two promises. It's amazing because he's so close to death. And so really, in that position of being so close to death, really, Jacob could stand on this side, or he could stand on this side. It was a choice. And so, 
he could have stood on the side of unbelief. Jacob could have said, oh, what's the use? God's promised to make me a multitude of people and give me Canaan. I'm hours from death. My family is nothing compared to this great number of Egyptians. I'm just a speck in this multitude. And God's promised to give me the land of Canaan. I'm living as a refugee in Egypt. And Canaan seems so far from me, I don't see how I'm ever gonna get back to Canaan. That's what he would have said if he was standing over on this side. I shouldn't have stood there because he's standing over this side on the side of unbelief. But Jacob didn't stand on that side. Instead, Jacob stood on the other side of belief. And this is the case where he says, oh, God Almighty promised that he's gonna make my family to be a multitude of people. Give me Canaan, I'm rejoicing in that. And how God is gonna do that, I don't know, but I'm thinking of how God and his great almightiness is gonna take my little family, a little seed, and he's gonna make it explode into this great multitude of people. I'm thinking, how's God gonna do that? How's he gonna break through the barriers of me being in Egypt and, and propel us back to Canaan? You know, he might have thought to himself, he says, I don't know how God's going to make us explode onto a people, but maybe he's going to make my descendants to cover the land of Egypt. I don't know how God Almighty's going to do it, but, but I know he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to keep my descendants from becoming mixed in with the Egyptian people, but maybe God's going to make the Egyptians hate my people and make them slaves and build cities. Who knows? And then make the Egyptians kill all of our male children. I don't know. But however he's going to do it, God's going to do it. I don't know how God's going to make my descendants out of Egypt, but maybe it'll be that, that he'll just open up a big sea, like the Red Sea, and we'll just all walk on that and dry land. I don't know, but God Almighty, he, he's going to make it happen. What he's really saying here in verse 4 is that Jacob didn't know how, but Jacob knew who, and that makes all the difference. He didn't know how, his descendants would become a great multitude of people, and he didn't know how his descendants were going to get back to the land of Canaan, but he knew who. He knew who was going to make this happen. God Almighty. He's going to make, who is going to make his people a multitude of people? Who's going to give the land of Canaan to him? It's going to be God Almighty. I mean, he didn't know how because he didn't have the book of Exodus yet. But now he knows. But anyway, what we see in verses three and four is a picture, again, of faith what faith looks like, which again, Charles Wesley wrote these words, faith, mighty faith, this is Jacob, faith, mighty faith, faith, the promise, the promise sees and looks to God alone, God Almighty, looks to God alone, laughs at impossibilities and cries it shall be done. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in verse three and four. He sees this promise in verse four. He looks to God alone, Jacob did. He laughs at impossibilities and says, It'll be done. It'll be done. Now, Joseph, he's brought his two sons to Jacob, and Jacob is like his father, Isaac, kind of ran in the family, bad sight, bad eyesight. Runs in my family, too. I can't see you if I take my glasses off. because I can't recognize you. Anyway, Jacob can't see like Isaac couldn't see. He can't see. And in verse 8, he doesn't even recognize his two grandsons when he says in verse 8, who are these? You know, it's like I could look and say, who is that? Oh, that's Scott. Okay, so, so even though Jacob cannot see enough to recognize his two grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're standing right in front of him, he just goes on to speak about them. I don't know who these are, but let me talk about them. <laughs> he says in verse 5, 
In verse 5, verse 5, And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came into, the, into Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Thy issue, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren and their inheritance. So Jacob here, he's been thinking about Joseph. He's been thinking about his children. He's been thinking about how Joseph, for the most of his life, was a disadvantaged kid. I mean, he didn't live with his family. As a matter of fact, when Jacob comes to give Joseph the final blessing in the next chapter in, in uh, Genesis 49, 26, he's going to bless Joseph with the words, the blessing of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Thou shalt be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. So this is how Jacob sees Joseph. Jacob sees his son as the son that was separate from his brethren. He was concerned about this. Jacob was concerned that his favorite son had been separated, separate from his family, and had lived most of his life as an Egyptian with an Egyptian name. After all, Joseph looked so Egyptian that when his brothers came to him the first time, they didn't even recognize him when they first saw him. Jacob now is so concerned that Joseph is so Egyptian He's got an Egyptian wife, not just any wife, not just any Egyptian wife, not just a run-of-the-mill Egyptian woman wife. No, he's got the daughter of a notable Egyptian priest for a wife. So Jacob is very concerned because Joseph has these two sons with this Egyptian priest, daughter of a priest, wife, who probably, his sons probably didn't know how to speak Hebrew, and for sure, they never tasted matzo ball soup or corned beef on rye, so they were really disadvantaged. Jacob is so concerned that Joseph's children would be ostracized by his family who would say, oh, Egyptians, you're Egyptians, you're not part of us. Stay away from us. That Jacob now does something extraordinary, extraordinary. He adopts Joseph's sons so that they'll be just, they won't just be Jacob's grandsons, they're going to be Jacob's sons, is what he does here. And this is the way that Jacob wants to state to Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, you are 100% part of this family. Forget about the fact that you have an Egyptian mother. Forget about the fact you're born in Egypt. Forget about the fact you don't know how to speak Hebrew. Maybe they did, I don't know. You are going to be adopted, and you're going to be put on the same level as Reuben and Simeon. Reuben and Simeon were the first and second born so Jacob is putting Manasseh on the same level as Jacob's firstborn. Actually, he switched it, but that's another story that's coming, but doesn't matter. And he puts Ephraim on the same level as either Simeon or Reuben. This is how strong Jacob was in his desire that Joseph's sons, who were born in Egypt to an Egyptian mother, should be absolutely not Egyptians. And most people would look at Manasseh and at Ephraim, well, it's not so bad. I mean, they got great prospects for a future. I mean, after all, they had a great, they come from a great Egyptian lineage, being the grandson of a famous Egyptian priest. They had great opportunities in Egypt. They had opportunities for wealth and for education. The sons of the governor of, of Egypt, what's so bad about that? But Jacob wanted his two grandsons to see that it's far better to join yourselves, boys, to the God of the Hebrews and to turn your back on Egypt 
and become full part with God's people. So when he does this remarkable thing of adopting Manasseh and Ephraim, he's setting Manasseh and Ephraim up that later they will each get a distinct part, an inheritance in the land of Canaan. That will be their inheritance. There's no part in the land of Canaan that will be divided for Joseph. There is no Joseph's lot there like there is for all the other sons. But instead, Joseph's lot is now going to be subdivided into Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, there's still going to be 12 parts, 12 tribes. God does it because he did just to be a little confusing about the whole thing, you know. But it's still going to be 12 parts, but the Levites are not going to have an actual part of the land, so it's still 12. And they're dispersed throughout all the land of Canaan. Now, later on, Jacob in verse 16, verse 16, he's going to pray He's going to pray in verse 16, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So when Jacob prays, let my name be named on them, the name of Abraham, the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, it's like Jacob at that point is de-Egyptianizing Manasseh and Ephraim. And he's, and Jacob's making Manasseh and Ephraim a part of Israel, God's church. So in verse five, we see Jacob there doing is that this is who he is. This is the quintessential Jacob. This is the essence of Jacob in verse five. Teaching his grandchildren, even as he's dying, don't look at Egypt as your home. Egypt is not your home. You don't think of yourselves as Egyptians. You're not Egyptians. You do not incorporate yourselves into the fabric of Egyptian life. You take your place with the people of God. It's better to be low inside the people of God than to be high outside the people of God. That's what he's teaching the boys here. It's wonderful to see this, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jacob and for his faithfulness as a grandfather to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Lord, may we be faithful also to teach young people and also to have the thrill, the thrill that Jacob had all the way to the final finish line. In Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Reach Israel. Join Tom Cantor for the second annual Israel Restoration Ministries Jewish Evangelism and Training Conference in San Diego, California, February 22nd and 23rd, 
at the Creation and Earth History Museum. Early bird registration, only $99, includes a two-day conference pass, meals, teaching, Creation Museum and Tabernacle admission, plus over $150 worth of equipping resources. Come hear Tom Cantor, Dr. Michael Brown, Dan Sered, and more on how we can reach the lost in America and Israel on February 22nd and 23rd. Call 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or sign up at ReachIsrael.com. That's ReachIsrael.com. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. Grow deeper in God's Word with the Friendship with God King James Version Study Bible prepared by Tom Cantor. This genuine lambskin large print study Bible features the history of Israel, full-color timeline and maps, frequently asked questions about the Jewish Messiah, prophecy and fulfillment study, Hebrew root notations and definitions, the life study of Joseph, and so much more. Order your copy today for only $49.95. That's $49.95. And receive a free personal signed copy by Mr. Tom Cantor, along with your name engraved on the cover. To order your Friendship with God Study Bible, call 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Or visit us at creationbookstore.com. That's creationbookstore.com. 